Hey, good morning. All right. Uh, I was asked about a like a complete package of notes for the class for the uh, eight weeks. I think we've got five or six sets here. Uh, we can make more is no problem. There's just, it's just a it's like twenty four sheets. Um, so if you want them, take them until they're gone. We can make more copies and have them in here at the end of the teaching hour. Second of all, I'm going to pass the notepad here. If you write your email, I will send you a file in Adobe or PDF format. So I think everybody then take all, you can just click on it, and most computers will open it up and won't. Uh, and if you you know write some notes over here, if you want uh, the PowerPoint slides too, I can send you those. That's a somewhat larger file, but I'll put that to Adobe also. So it'll all be in PDF format. That's just, that's a lot of slides. A lot of also pass that around. <clears throat> I know, that's right. Actually, you know, what is, what is so cool, what is so neat about the way they recorded Scripture early on, it's what kept it um, true through the centuries. Because if it had been electronic, right, all one guy's got to do is foul up that first file. And error gets transmitted for the millennium. But when people went in and recorded hand copy after copy after copy after copy and they go it around, well, it's hard to go in and foul up. Right? A co- a, you, can, you can screw up a few of them over here. You can put heresy in or you can lose things over here in this part of the world or this city. But if you go out through the, the whole of Christianity, it, it, kept, it kept the consistency and the, and the trueness of the text. And there is a technical word there that I'm list, missing right now. But uh, anyway, that's just one of those neat things that you're right. This is, this is different in the first century. But you could corrupt this. Let's say this was inspired, which it's not. If it was inspired, you could corrupt this one. Someone could have corrupt this one file, right? And it's corrupted. Whereas Paul would write, and he would read, and all of a sudden you've got two or three people in the audience writing down Scripture, and it goes. Very quickly you've, got, you've locked in uh, the consistency and the uh, uh, reliability of God's Word. Pretty neat. Pretty neat thing to think about. Okay. I left my PowerPoint slide at the house this morning. So I raced home and and got my file, and just got back. Now I need my heart to quit moving. And Clifford didn't come pray over me, settle my spirit. But uh, I'll try to bring it down here, and uh, we'll wrap up. Okay, let's get going. Let's pray. Our gracious Father, we thank you so much. We thank you so much for... Your word that is true, it is consistent, it is our, our rule for all life and all practice and all godliness. And we thank you for it. Lord, we thank you for these truths of, uh, of you and how you've deemed to work and salvation. And we just, uh, we stand in awe of you. Now, Lord, this morning I pray that you would come, you would that your Holy Spirit would use my words 
to speak truth and to honor and to glorify you. I pray that any error I speak would be kept from people's memories. And Lord, I pray that as, as, as a group here that we would just be faithful to follow you and to honor you in all we do. In Christ's name I pray. Amen. All right. Good morning. Welcome to uh, the last class in our series on Calvinism. What's in a Calvinist a tulip, we said, by any other name, would smell as sweet. And the point to that being is that the, the tulip is not the sum and summary of all we are, or it does not define necessarily uh, who we are. But what we want to be is, whether you call it doctrines of grace, biblical theology, a God-centered theology, Calvinism, is it, it is a system of thought by where we, we, uh, we understand God's work in salvation uh, throughout his created timeline. You see we're on week eight? We've, uh, we've already gotten down to so what? How shall we live? And perhaps even a few dilemmas. Um, but the focus really I want to deal with, how shall we live? How shall we live? I mean, that's the question, right? If you just take this and you put it in your mind and leave it there, into your knowledge and leave it there, then it's, what, what, what good is it, right? We need a live faith, a living faith. Where we've been, we said, uh, we established that scriptures are rule. If we can't go to scripture and we cannot see and understand what we believe, if it's merely the logic of men or the thoughts of men, then, then that's, that's really not worth a whole lot of our, our effort. But if it's God's word that we can go to for proof, if it's God's word that we can go to for understanding, then it's, then it's sure and it's firm. And so what I've tried to do in the last seven weeks is to rigorously go to Scripture. This text after text after text. Um, I hope it has not seemed like logic, but it has been what the text has said. Logic is good. God gave that to us. But it's only right in so much that it comes from His Word. God is a logical God. He's a God that created logic. He's a God of, he's a God of order. He's not a God of chaos. But Scripture is our rule. The root and stem of the blossom that we've called tulip is God's character and his sovereignty. Really, that governs everything. It's where we start. God is sovereign. God is over all. It's all about God. It's not about us. I think that's where this theology, its, it's focus is. is, 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 is it is... Truly, a theology that focuses first and foremost on God. And the question is always asked what gives God the most glory? When we come to a tough text, when we come to a point, the question is, is what gives God the most glory? And that really should 
should guide our answer. Really, let me, a little bit of personal story. Uh, had a little bit of email exchange this week, and the, the question came up as far as where my eschatology, right, my understanding of end times landed. And the, and the person kind of thought that my end times, my, end, my understanding of the end times must be a certain way because my, of my Calvinism, because of my Reformed understanding of salvation. And the point being is that, no, there are men that understand the end times in a variety of ways, and that does not necessarily affect how we view God's work in salvation. And what came up in that conversation is that this goes back to coming out of my, coming into college and out of the Marine Corps. I remember starting to struggle with some things as far as what I saw, as far as who God was, what I saw in believers' lives and, and the church. And I remember picking up a book by Sproul, R.C. Sproul, and the Holiness of God. And I really had pounded home to me this very high and exalted view of God, right? Isaiah 6, his train filled the temple, right? Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. And I, and I had this, and I saw a teacher through a book really paint for me a picture of an awesome and high God. And went to text after text after text. And then in that same time period, I remember a hospital visit and a funeral and, and kind of growing up, and I, and I saw Christians, if this is our view of God, well, why, why don't we live and die that way? Okay? This is the view. This is the view of God that God's word presents. Why does the church not live and die that way? And so they started trying to understand how God saves and what it does. As I started, just to, as I just started to read and started to study, and not really actively trying to find out, but just having a point. I started. I I, I came to the understanding. I had I had people through books and point me to God's complete and total and sovereign work and salvation. And that work that I saw God doing in a believer, it started to match up with this high and exalted view of God that I saw in the Scripture. So, th so that's how I, I came to these views. I don't know if where you know, some of you all are as far as your, your theology and understanding of how God saves, but for me, this is not just an abstract uh, academic issue to be right or to be wrong or to win a point. But for to me, it, it came out of uh, just this to me is what gives God the most glory. And it humbles man the most. Okay? That, that's, that's what I've hoped to show is what glorify God's the most. Man's condition, we, we said it was totally depraved. We said it was... Uh, corrupted we said that uh, every part of his being is touched by sin man is completely or pervasively opposed to god and his spiritual ability man will never naturally or truly seek god every person is not as bad as he can be 
But he's morally corrupt in everything in that everything in him is tainted through and through with sin so that he can in no way attain or even reach for a savior. He is dead in his trespasses and sins. Dead is dead. Dead isn't ill. Dead isn't sick. Dead is dead. That's what we established that man's condition was in his natural state before God. So, God, who is sovereign and true to his character, he, is, he alone is free to display his glory above all else. God had to save a people. And it wasn't because of anything this dead man did, we said, but it's purely because of God's conditions for whatever in his inscrutable will he chose for himself a people. God's freedom and glory is displayed in unconditional election. That's what we said. God in eternity past chose a people for himself for adoption upon whom he chose to show mercy. He did this conditioned solely on his own mercy and freedom. He alone is truly free, and his freedom is the essence of his glory. I am who I am. I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, God told Moses. We see this when Moses cried out to see God's glory in Exodus 33. And God's response was to declare that he would indeed make his goodness pass before Moses and proclaim his name, the Lord. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious. And I will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. Or to say it another way, God said, I am that I am. So when Moses cried out to see God's glory, God says, I will make my goodness pass before you. And I will have good mercy upon whom I have mercy. I will have compassion upon whom I have passion. As he said, Moses, let me see your glory. God says, I'll show you my glory. I am that I am. Okay, that's the point. Hence the first sentence in Ephesians where three times God proclaims that his sovereign work of salvation is to the praise of the glory of his grace. Thus, our being chose for adoption before the foundation of the world was to display the glory of God's grace. And grace, by definition, is only shown when one is shown favor he does not deserve. So before the world, before sin, God chose to adopt the people for the displays of his glory based upon his condition and his condition alone, not based upon a condition found in the creature. Then we looked at the uh, atonement. We made the statement that it was a limited or it was a particular redemption. The atonement was the pinnacle work of history, but the pinnacle of history, Jesus Christ himself. It was effectual and for his sheep, whereby he actually redeemed for himself a people. It accomplished everything it intended. It satisfied the wrath of God in judgment and it purchased the grace and the faith required to bring his chosen people to salvation. Remember we showed this is the grounds of the new covenant. This is the covenant in my blood for the forgiveness of sins. What? Do this in remembrance of me. That's what we remember every week is this new covenant. This purchasing of grace and faith, the giving of a new heart, right? And the satisfying of God's wrath. That's what we remember. This covenant was in his blood or was purchased by his blood. And this covenant promises the complete work of God in his people's heart where he does all that is required to make them his people. 
This new covenant is conditional purely on God's work. And this new covenant cannot be, mere, cannot be merely for a people, a national people, Israel, but for all God's people. The new covenant is given to all God's people, Jew and Gentile alike. That's who he poured out his blood for, his people. So we have a people that are in need of a Savior. They have nothing which wish to offer or to draw God or turn to God. And we see a God that has purchased them or redeemed them back from the dead. So now God must come and he must draw them to himself. So having chosen and purchased or having redeemed for himself a people, God effectually calls through his spirit his chosen people to himself. He breathes life into the dead man. He takes the heart of stone and replaces it with a heart of flesh. As with Lazarus, Jesus simply calls out, come forth. And when Lazarus is made alive, he does what live men do. He lives. He does so freely. He does so joyfully. Lazarus is the picture of salvation. That is the picture of me. That's the picture of you. Jesus breathed into you and you live. And, and having lived, you freely chose to follow your Savior because you saw with eyes now opened that he was beautiful and that he was good and there was nothing else that you'd rather do. Okay? Now, life is a period of sanctification, right? Or it's a process of sanctification. You're saved, right? But you're going to be made more like him more and more and more until the day you die, Right? And that's when we came and we looked at the, the doctrine of the perseverance of the saints. Or another, part, another portion of it was God's preservation. Two sides of the same coin. Man having been given a new heart, being regenerated, will thus persevere in the faith until the last day because God promises to sustain him and will preserve his saints until the end. Okay? We must persevere. It's a necessity. But God says of His saints, He will preserve them. Right? So when you persevere, the other side of that coin is it's God's hand that's upholding you and holding you up and keeping you firm until the end. So then in the end, when we stand before Him, we'll merely fall down and worship and He will get the glory. It won't be about us. It won't be about our Getting it out. It'll be about his sustaining grace. Right? That's, that's the doctrine of the perseverance of the saints. So that's it, right? That's it. Turn out the lights and go home. Heck, we're done, right? Done early. Now the question is, is how does that affect our worldview? How does, how, how does that affect the way we're going to live. That's the question. The question is tomorrow morning. What's it mean to you tomorrow morning? Right? And what's it mean to you Friday when you've had five days of work, right? And, and you're tired and you kind of, Sunday morning's a little foggy. What's the implications of this theology? What's this implication? What are the implications of this view of God and this view of man and God's work in man? Is it just merely how we're saved? Going to heaven, you leave it there. 
My answer is no. This theology will work itself out in all areas of your life. God is sovereign. He is the creator. We are creatures. It's all about him. God is a God of order. He's not a God of chance. We get our doctrine right first. That's great. Okay, But then comes practice. For all scriptures God breathed and profitable for, right? Teaching correction, training righteousness. Right? So that a man of God might be what? Mature. Mature, right? And suitable for all good works. So you get your theology and your doctrine and your thinking right out of God's word. And then the verse doesn't end. So that the man of God will be mature and suitable for the good works. That's what it's for. So what are the implications for worship? I think these truths lead me to see an accurate view of myself. They lead me to see my complete wretchedness and that I am in need of a Savior in every aspect. My heart is corrupted. My mind is corrupted. My desires are corrupted. I think these truths guard me against a man-centered worship. They should guard us against a worship that focuses on what we get out of it. Rather, they should push us to a worship that praises God. Right? It should praise God. Now, the question is, is should our worship be merely in here on Sunday morning? Is that where worship ends? Is that right? Or our argument was no. So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, what? Do it all to the glory of God. He is to receive praise and glory and honor from all we do. So your very life is, is, is worship, right? Whether you're going to school, whether you're teaching kids, right? Working as a doctor. It's... You do that to God's glory. That is an act of worship. That is an offering that you make each and every day. As an aside, this, this, this is what and I think in the Reformation changed the way the world time. Before you had priests and you had people, right? You had a holy service, people that were full-timers to God, and then you had the people. But when the Reformers came in, they said, no, we are a kingdom of priests. Every man is able to praise and approach God and, and offer a, uh, an offering to Him. Okay? Practice in the presence of God, a small book was written by Manny Brother Lawrence. He was just a dishwasher in a, in a monastery, but his, his practice was to make every dish that he washed be a gift to God. Right. So you had to be a monk to do that, right? I mean, if you're at home, get kids. I mean, you can care for your family to the glory of God. All right? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. Now what takes place after this verse? Right? The practical side of Romans. Right? Romans 12 going forward. Right? 
point being, get our understanding of God's word right. And Paul says, now, everything you deserve to was to his praise, to his glory. Now, live it out. And he moves on in. Okay? What is the chief end of man? To glorify God and enjoy him forever. One of the ways we like to say it is to glorify God by enjoying him forever, right? In all that we do. Worship becomes an end in itself. Or we do not merely come together to worship so that something happens, but we worship. And having worshiped and having seen God's glory, we go and do. In other words, everything we do is a product of worship. Okay, so I think that this view of God, this high and exalted view of God's salvation and this view of man, okay, the implications in how we worship each week. How are you going to take that bread? How are you going to take that cup? When you see the new, this is the new covenant, right? This is what God purchased your faith, the grace by which you believe, right? And he suffered the wrath of God in your place. That's what it is each week. Right? And out here, and we go out and we live it to his praise and his glory, right? Monday through Saturday. Worship. I think these doctrines also keep us alert to truth. We don't have to know every falsehood. We merely have to know truth. If we if we have a if we have a right view of God and a right view of man, you can really evaluate everything else. You don't have to know every tenet of, of uh, Mormonism or every tenet of Jehovah's Witness or, or, or pick the ism that's out there. If you know truth, you can weigh that, right? right. That's another thing. In, in our worship and being understanding that it is God. Implications for prayer. Having, having this view of God, having this view of God's sovereignty, His work of men, what, what, what does it do to your pray? I think these truths make me confident in prayer. I can pray with a fervency and a conviction knowing that God has determined prayer as the means of His sovereign work. I don't pray, oh Lord, I pray they will figure it out. That's not a prayer, is it? No. I can pray for myself for the salvation of my children. Right? Lord, have mercy upon my children. Take their little hearts of stone and give them hearts of flesh. Lord, have mercy upon my girls. Give them eyes that will see your beauty as they grow and that they will then follow you and be obedient to them. Take them, Lord. They are yours. You created them. Save them. You have the right. Make them alive. That's what our prayers can be. And it doesn't have to be about our children. It can be about our friends and our family. We can make those demands and then rest in God's purpose. We don't have to pray and hope. We pray and have hope in God. We have hope in His character. That's what should do our prayer life. And I will give them one heart and a new spirit, and I will put within them, and I will remove the heart of stone from their flesh and give them a heart of flesh. That's our prayer for those that are lost. And we can pray that. God, God, do this. 
You said you will do it for your people. I pray you will do it. And that's where our prayer can be. I can pray the Lord's Prayer, and I know that He is able to do that. Right? He can do, right? Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done. Not thy will be done if, 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 if men will only let it. No, it's thy will be done because you are sovereign and you are good and you are working it out. I can make demands. Now, when did I rest in God's sovereignty? And the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul that you may live. Again, folks, this is the way we should pray. This is the way we should approach the Lord. Okay? We should approach Him when we pray for people's salvation. And, and whatever it is in your life, right? Pray and know that God will work out His perfect plan and His perfect will. How's it affect us in evangelism? Some people accuse the Calvinists or say that a Calvinist teaching will lead to no evangelism, right? Well, I mean, if God's chosen them, right? Why do I got to go, right? If he's already predetermined and predestined and, and, and he's determined who will come to him, I mean, then I just need to mind my own business and, and God will bring to, those, to himself those who are his, right? Well... First of all, that's 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 bad conclusion of this. Okay, that's not that's not what we've taught, right? What we've seen is that God used the means of us going so that people will come, and we can go and know that there are others that are out there, right? I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must gather them. So when we've got missionaries that are over there in 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 tough environments and tough lands. Their confidence is not in their ability to reason, right? That they will find the right person. They just have to be faithful to what God has called them to. And God will draw his people through them, right? I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also. And they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock and one shepherd. John 10, verse 16. That is what gives, to me, the missionary confidence to keep on keeping on. It gives us confidence when we're in the workplace with our family to keep on keeping on. Jesus says, they will listen to my voice. It may not be in our time, but in his time, they will. It's not uh, dependent upon my ability to win converts, Right? but upon God's ability to use me. I, I don't have to sing uh, eight stanzas of just as I am, right, to, 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 to work a person in. No, I have to proclaim the truth, be winsome, and trust God to do His work. What's your view of your own salvation? What's your view of your salvation of others? What's your view of God's global plan? Right? All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son 
and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Right? So God's going to complete his work in bringing people to himself in salvation, whether it be your life, your children's life, or the world where you're the acting as a sender. We should have God's we should have confidence in God's ability to complete his plan for the world, for our lives. Right? Philippians 1 6 says this. I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Right? So we can go, we can evangelize, we can be faithful, and know that God will not only complete the work in us, but he will complete the work. And those who are his, those sheep that aren't of that particular fold, but that he will bring them in. You know, I've worked on some construction jobs that were quite well known and special jobs. It was predestined those places would be built, whether I did it or not. But it was just the thought of being part of that, working on it. God has predetermined every nail to be driven. Right? If, if, if God is sovereign and God's in control of all details, every nail is going to be in that two by four. But you know what? The means by which God has determined for those nails to be in that two by four is for a hammer to drive them. So it doesn't it doesn't affect that you've got to go drive those nails and do you, and do that and know that God has determined that those nails will go in. That that's what we're talking about. All right, that's what we're talking about. Okay, daily living. Do these, yes, sir? Right, the stance says right. It's, we should view every encounter, every contact, every relationship, every neighbor, every, every cube mate. God's placed them there. This is not a thing of chance. But God has determined that his people should sit here or know this person here. Therefore, what does that mean? They may be someone that God's going to choose to bring to himself through you. Every kid at camp. Okay? Because God's determined to work through you to bring people to himself. God's determined to turn men's hearts to himself through your prayers for people. So pray. So witness. Right? So live in a way that glorifies Him. Do these truths affect our daily living? These truths should cause us to see everything in the light of God's plan for His glory. Right? We looked at 1 Corinthians. I mean, I put it up there. Yeah. So whether you drink, do it all for the glory of God. Everything we do should be done for his glory in our daily living. We, we don't necessarily have, as a, as a believer, we don't have to view it as having mundane things in our life or mundane things to do. They all can be done for the glory of God as a believer. The unbeliever cannot glorify God in washing dishes. As a believer, you can glorify God in washing dishes. You can glorify God in doing laundry, right, or or running the books at the end of the month. You can do that. The unbeliever cannot. What, what, a, what a privilege that is. 
He's, been, he's created us to, to bring Him glory. I see God's sovereign working in everything to bring about His purpose and salvation of His people at the heart of His plan. Stop there. Just, we don't have to be anxious, right? We don't have to be depressed. We don't have to be bummed out about how we are brought up or even... I, I, I've been blessed. I've, I've not had like just something horrible happen to me in my past. Okay? But there are those people that have come out of horrible things and they suffer great anxiety or a great... Dep- as a believer, you can rest and that God is sovereign in that and He's purposed it for your good and for His glory. I think that's one of the strengths of this theology. Right? If it's at the whim of man or at the will of man, God's going to do His best, but He's still going to leave men to, his, to their own freedom because He doesn't want to... Then what happens to you is not necessarily all in God's control. But if we believe God is sovereign, no matter what, He's purposed that. And that's what gives us strength to handle that. Okay? Yeah. thing he mentions is even though you go through various kinds of trials although now for a little while you may have suffered right griefs and all kinds of trials these have come so right right your faith right which is of greater worth than gold maybe proved genuine and result in praise glory and honor that jesus christ is revealed right first peter it's great so these griefs may and trials may have come for a little while but they have come so that your faith may be proved genuine and result in praise, glory, and honor to God. So, First Peter, Peter 1, verses 3 through 11. Memorize it. <laughs> know it. Go back to it. I can live confidently in this life, this daily walk, and know that God will triumph in the end. Just what Robert said. Isaiah 46, 9 through 10 says, Remember the former things of old, for I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning. Ancient times, things not yet done, saying, My counsel shall stand, and I will, and I will accomplish all my purpose. I don't have to be anxious about this life. I don't have to be depressed about this life. I know Whatever happens, it's God's counsel, and His counsel will stand. And He's established the end from the beginning, or the beginning from the end. Actually, the end from the beginning, right? And that's where my confidence lies. So the question is, is okay, we're going to go out of here. What are the implications for tomorrow, next week, next year, next whatever comes about, right? Well, our, our confidence and hope lies in this. Our God sits in the heavens and He does all that pleases Him. And we have the privilege of living 
our lives out under the umbrella of that verse. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for the day. We thank you for these truths that uh, you have not only worked in the salvation of your people, but you have worked in all the earth for all your plan, for all times. Lord, may we just live our lives in the, in the shadow of that knowledge and rejoice in that. In Christ's name I pray. Amen.